It is a privilege to have the opportunity to stand here again this week uh, to proclaim the Word of God. Uh, it's always an honor, and I'm thankful for the opportunity. Uh, I encourage you to follow along in the text this morning. We'll be looking at Psalm chapter 32, the 32nd Psalm. And as you're turning there, I want to begin by saying that, or, or putting forth for your consideration this statement, that all of humanity is searching for something. Every man or woman or boy or girl that you ever have or ever will meet is driven by a need to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction. And they may try to find it in relationships or they may try to find it in possessions or status. They may seek to attain it through power or influence. Each one has their own idea of what success in this venture will look like. And some even achieve a few of the, their lofty goals only to find that it wasn't really what they were looking for after all. And so their search continues. Now I realize that this is a broad and bold assertion, but it's one I can make with confidence because you know it to be true as well. We all observe it in others, in those around us, from those who are the very closest relationships to us, all the way up to the celebrities that we only know through what we see portrayed of them in the media representations. And we also know it from our own personal experiences. Every one of us here this morning either is on or has been on this search. And some in life seem to achieve a measure of success in the sense that they reach some of the waypoints that they've mapped out on this path to finding happiness and fulfillment. But ironically, it seems the more successful that one is uh, in many of these ventures, the more miserable and unhappy they seem to become. Just look at those in our society who have achieved the greatest notoriety in terms of celebrity and wealth. And I'm referring to those who are household names, who are millionaires, who are often labeled as the most successful, the most beautiful, the most desirable. And look at what little we know of their personal lives. They're more often than not filled with scandal and heartbreak and littered with broken relationships. Because despite all that they have achieved, they are far from being satisfied or at peace. The other reason that I'm confident in making this broad statement is that this is exactly the picture of fallen humanity that is revealed to us in the pages of God's Word. Scripture not only tells us that men are searching, but it also tells us why they so often fail. It is because they are looking for their meaning and their purpose everywhere except for the one place in which it can be found. And so they search on and on. And like Solomon, they've sampled all the delicacies, all of the pleasures that this life has to offer, and they have found them to be hollow and empty. Like the Samaritan woman at the well, they've given themselves to relationship after relationship, and still they keep coming back to the well to draw water to quench their thirst, which is a metaphor for a heart that can never truly find satisfaction. 
And just like the rich man that Jesus told of, they amass wealth and possessions and build ever bigger barns to store it all. And yet in the end, they leave it all to another. And they stand empty-handed before the judge of all the earth. Now, the book of Psalms has much to say about this pursuit of what men are seeking. This elusive goal of meaning and joyful fulfillment that we're talking about is often referred to in the book of Psalms by the term blessedness. And this is sometimes paraphrased as happiness, and that is certainly a part of its meaning, yet it encompasses much, much more. This blessedness refers to a well-being, to a fulfillment and happiness that, that encompasses all of life. It's not a reference to the absence of all difficulty. It doesn't mean that they never have a hardship or a trial, but rather it's a joyful satisfaction that transcends circumstances. This is exactly what so many are chasing, what they would give anything seemingly that they have in this world, any amount of money, any amount of possessions to acquire. And the book of Psalms gives us instruction for where it is to be found. And Psalm 32 is one such passage which we will look at closely this morning. Now the psalm is identified in the, in the title there. If you notice most of your Bibles probably above verse 1, there'll be a few words uh, maybe in small caps or a slightly different font. That's the title of the psalm. And those titles uh, are not something, unlike the, the sort of column headings in the rest of your Bible, those titles in the psalms are not something that was added later by editors of the translation. Those are in the original text. They are part of God's inspired word. And in this title of this psalm, it is identified as a mascal of David. A mascal is one of the number of terms in the psalms that are mostly found in, in these titles, uh, the meaning of which is not absolutely certain. And so because of this, most of your English translations prefer not to translate this, uh, but rather to just, just transliterate it, just uh, change the, the Hebrew pronunciation into English and leave it at that. Uh, but while we don't have a precise definition of what the word means, we do have some sense of its general meaning. Uh, the etymology of the word suggests the idea of insight or instruction. And so mascal in the title likely indicates that this is a wisdom psalm meant to give uh, insight and an understanding to those who read it. And it also, as we'll see, has some of the characteristics of a thanksgiving psalm with its themes of distress and deliverance in verses 3 to 7. But however we understand the title of this psalm, its message is quite clear and laid out in the opening verses. And that is that true happiness or true blessing is found only in a restored relationship and close fellowship with God. Humanity's emptiness that drives them on this search is a result of their sin and rebellion against God. And nothing else will bring the blessedness and fulfillment that they are seeking except for forgiveness from and restoration to God. So let's look at the text this morning, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in, whom, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. 
I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So verses 1 and 2 state a principle or a truth on which all the rest of the psalm is based. And that is that blessedness is only found by the one who has turned from their rebellion and had the guilt of their sin taken away. So long as we remain hostile to God and under His just condemnation for our sins, we will never find the rest and fulfillment that we seek. Because we were made to have fellowship with God. We were made to glorify Him, and our ability to do both of those things was marred and broken by sin. And that brings us to the first hurdle that we face in applying this principle to our lives. In order to be blessed, we must be forgiven, and in order to be forgiven, we must seek forgiveness, and that requires a recognition of our sin. There is no forgiveness or reconciliation without a recognition of sin and separation. And these verses here, verses 1 and 2, are clear on just what is included in that recognition. First is the fact that sin has separated us from God. We might look like we have it all together on the outside, and perhaps we've fooled many or most of those around us by thinking that we're a pretty good person, and we seem to have most everything in hand But there is no fooling God, and our sin must be dealt with. Second, we must recognize the personal nature of our sin. The psalmist in these verses refers to the one whose transgression is forgiven and the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So this is not just some general reference to the, the guilt and sin of humanity as a whole, but this is a reference to individual sins, yours and mine. And thirdly, we must recognize who it is that we have sinned against. Now, doubtless, our sins involve and touch many other people and many other lives. But ultimately, every sin is an offense against the holiness of God. He is the standard of goodness. He is the judge. His forgiveness alone can transform us from a rebellious sinner into his child. And here's where the hope of the gospel comes into play. Now, you may not see at first glance the good news in these verses. Perhaps you only see the condemnation of your sin, but I promise you the good news is there. See, the Apostle Paul quoted from these very verses, Psalm 32, 1 and 2, in Romans chapter 4 when he was explaining that salvation, justification, that is being forgiven and made right before God, he was explaining how that is by faith alone, and he quotes from Psalm 32. 
And there are three essential characteristics that are found in these two verses which point us to the gospel, reveal to us that this is what is being talked about here, that this is gospel good news that is being offered. The first is that the forgiveness in these verses is by grace and not a result of our works. There's no hint of self-justification in those opening verses. It does not say, blessed is the one who earns forgiveness. It doesn't set forth a list of rules to keep in order for us to be forgiven. But the sin is just forgiven. It is by grace, God's grace alone. And the second thing that reveals the gospel in these verses is that the sin is truly dealt with. This is not like the Old Testament sacrificial system where God simply passed over sins. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that those animal sacrifices never actually did away with sin. They just simply postponed judgment. However, the blessing in these verses applies to the one whose sin is forgiven. That is, the one who has had the guilt and penalty of their sin removed. And verse 2 says that their past sins are now no longer counted against them in the eyes of God. And the third characteristic of the gospel that we see is the transformative result that comes. Their eyes are opened. The deceit that was in their spirit is no more. They have been made righteous. Their sins were taken away and placed upon Christ who paid their penalty in full. And His perfect righteousness has been given to them in that greatest of exchanges that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And then beginning in verse 3, David recounts a personal testimony of his own experience of receiving this forgiveness. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So like many, probably like most of us at one point, David's initial response to being confronted with his sin is silence. That is, he kept silent regarding his sin. And a refusal to acknowledge and recognize our sin is the natural response of a rebellious heart. And David goes on here to describe the effects of his silence. The consequence of this refusal to acknowledge his sin brings about a deep unrest of body and mind. It affects his physical well-being. He says his bones wasted away. This is not merely poetic language. Although it doesn't always have immediate physical effects, refusal to deal with our sin affects our body as well as our mind and spirit. And it also affects his mental state. He describes groaning all the day long. And so David's unwillingness to deal with his sin caused him great suffering And yet that suffering wasn't accomplishing anything in regards to his sin. No amount of suffering on David's part could ever atone. I fear sometimes that people under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and they suffer for their sins and sometimes they continue on in that thinking that maybe by suffering enough they will earn God's favor. It will never happen. The debt is too great for them to pay. Only Christ's perfect life and death can satisfy that penalty. But ultimately, the suffering that David experiences is not the act of a vindictive God, but it's an expression of God's mercy. 
It's not intended to crush David, but rather to lead him to repentance and salvation. He describes in verse 4, feeling God's hand upon him as a weight pressing him, wearing him down until his strength is gone. And like parched ground, which has had every bit of moisture pulled out of it by the relentless heat of the sun, David is weakened and worn down physically and mentally. His strength is dried up. He is discovering the reality that so many have, that it is exhausting to fight against God. And then here at the end of verse 4, we have the term Selah. This is another of those words whose meaning is uncertain, but it likely signals some sort of break or change in the music or the singing, perhaps a pause or an interlude. And because of this, I think that when we find this in the Psalms, it provides us a perfect opportunity to pause for a moment and reflect on what has just been said, to think carefully about what has just preceded it in the text. So as we come to this first Selah here, consider for a moment the reality of your sin my sin, and the hope that we have in the gospel. Consider the futility of one who, like David, refuses to acknowledge that sin and seek the forgiveness that is freely offered to them. And consider the great mercy of God in persistently drawing them to repentance. Deliverance from David's distress finally comes in verse 5 with the confession of his sin. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here in David's words, once again, we have a clear picture of what true repentance looks like. First, he acknowledges his sin. And the word translated as acknowledged here refers to seeking or asking about something. So it's a gaining of knowledge or experience from some source outside oneself. So in other words, David is no longer trying to excuse or redefine his sin, but rather he is accepting and agreeing with what God says about his sin. He is dealing with the reality of sin on God's terms, not his own. And then he adds, I did not cover my iniquity. One way that we can recognize true acknowledgement of sin is when we stop pretending that we have none. Instead, we are candid with God and with others about our sinfulness and about our need for forgiveness. The second thing that David does that shows us true repentance is that he confesses his transgressions to the Lord. Now, we must be open about our sinfulness to others, and indeed the book of James tells us that we can benefit sometimes from confessing our faults to other believers so that they can pray for us. But the confession that brings divine forgiveness and restoration is a confession made to God alone. There's no atoning value in reciting your sins to a pastor or a priest. It is God whom we have sinned against, and it is to God that we must confess. And once he had acknowledged his sinfulness and confessed his transgressions to God, David received the promised forgiveness. There was no deception on God's part. This was no ploy. When we acknowledge and confess our sins to God, there is no uncertainty about whether or not he will fulfill his promise to forgive. 
One of the most comforting passages in all of Scripture. Most of you hopefully know it by heart. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the very moment that we turn to God in faith, looking to Him for rescue from our rebellion, we are forgiven. Our standing before Him is changed instantly. We go from being condemned to being justified, from being His avowed enemy to being His beloved and adopted child. There's no halfway measure. There's no middle ground. God's forgiveness is complete and total. Selah. There's that word again. Stop and consider. Think about this. Then from the principle that is stated in those opening verses, and now from his own personal testimony of distress and deliverance, David moves on now in verse 6 to the application of this. Based on what he has learned from his experience, he now gives counsel and instruction to those who are reading and singing this psalm. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. For you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So David addresses this counsel to everyone who is godly. And this uh, is a reference to the saints. The word translated here as godly is from the same root word that we find used throughout Scripture to express God's faithful love. And when this term is used of men elsewhere in the Bible, it always refers to the people of God who are committed to living in conformity to His will. That is, to those who are in covenant relationship with Him and on whom He has placed His steadfast love. And David instructs the saints, the godly, to offer a prayer at a time when you may be found. Several of the sources uh, that I read noted that this is a particularly difficult or tricky phrase to translate from the Hebrew. And the ESV rendering here is very accurate, uh, but it might not best communicate to us the sense of what David meant. This phrase is really an admonition to the saints that they should not delay in confessing their sin. And so I like the rendering of the the Christian Standard Bible, uh, which renders the first part of that verse, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. There's an urgency to this, to act right away. Don't delay, don't put off confession, do it now. In other words, David's counsel to the godly is when you sin, confess. Don't suffer like David did. Don't make God discipline you in order to bring you to repentance. Be quick to confess and to seek his forgiveness. And then he adds, Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. The book of Psalms, great waters or floods are frequently used as a poetic image for troubles and trials. And here in this instance particularly, I think that David has in mind God's ultimate judgment on the wicked which likewise is described in Scripture as an overwhelming flood which sweeps away and destroys. But those who profess godliness should be quick to confess their sin and seek forgiveness. And in doing so, they will have the comfort of knowing that when the flood of God's judgment comes, it will not reach them because they are secure in Him. And then in verse 7, David calls God his hiding place, whom he says preserves him from trouble. 
You see, the godly, the saints who have had the experience of being forgiven, they have a different view of God than those who are still in rebellion against Him. The rebellious see God as an avenging judge who rightly condemns them for their sin, and they try to flee and to hide their sins from God. But the saints, however, see God as a refuge. And when they find themselves troubled by their sin, they run to Him in order to find safety. It may seem ironic, but Scripture is clear that the only way for you to be saved from God is by running to God. And then finally, David says at the end of verse 4 there, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. Or verse 7, excuse me. Think for just a moment what shouts of deliverance are. What is he talking about there when he says, you surround me with shouts of deliverance? Now, there's all manner of shouts in a battle. There are shouts of command, cries of victory, screams of agony and defeat. But it's when all hope seems to be lost and when you are about to be overwhelmed, and then at that moment, suddenly, reinforcements arrive, and the battle shifts in your favor, and you are rescued from certain defeat and certain death, and that is when you hear shouts of victory and shouts of deliverance. They come with hope and with rescue. And David says this is the encouragement that we receive from God even in the midst of troubles and difficulties, he surrounds the saints with shouts of deliverance, with the voices of the redeemed who are assured of their deliverance because God is ever faithful to his promises. Selah. Then verse 8 begins with a clear wisdom language pointing to instruction and counsel. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. And there's some debate about who the speaker is in this verse. It's offering instruction here. Is it David speaking in Verse 8, or is it God? I prefer the latter option, uh, that the speaker giving instruction here is God. And there's two reasons for that. First, I think it makes sense in the flow of the whole psalm, which has David speaking to us, the, the reader, in verses 3 to 6. And then David speaking to God in verse 7. And then God replying to David and us through him in verses 8 and 9. And I also think it best fits the phrase that is used here, I will counsel you with my eye upon you, which seems a strange thing for David to say to the readers of the psalm, but a perfectly appropriate thing for God to say to David and through him to us. So in verse 9, the Lord offers counsel to those who would remain resistant to confess their sin. And he paints a poignant mental image of a stubborn horse or a mule. In contrast to the the desire for intelligent cooperation that is expressed in verse 8 where he's wanting to instruct and to counsel and to impart wisdom. Here the image is used of an animal who will only obey if it is made to do so. 
When I was a young boy, like probably many of you, I was infatuated with cowboys. And I could typically be found somewhere about my neighborhood riding on my bike, which was my horse, wearing a straw cowboy hat with a six-shooter strapped to my side, possibly a rifle across my lap. And I patrolled the neighborhood. When I was about 10 years old, we had the opportunity to go on an extended vacation, one of the few that I got to take as a child. And we spent three weeks traveling through the western part of the United States. And as we went farther and farther west, I was overjoyed because there was cowboy stuff everywhere. I wasn't the only one wearing a cowboy hat anymore. I, I fit in. Uh, one of the things that we got to do, there was all sorts of, of chuck wagon events and things like that, but we got to go on a trail ride. And for all my love of cowboys, I'd hardly ever been around a horse. And so I got to ride on a, on a horse. And I was put on, I'm sure, a very gentle and docile horse. And we started off in this line down the trail with a trail guide. And as we were going along, there was this incline, not very steep, seemed steeper when you're sitting on a horse down one side. And the trail went along there. And as I was riding, my horse decided to go that way. And uh, I was not quite sure how to, to do this, never having ridden a horse. I didn't know what to do. And the guide was kind enough, came back, put the horse back on the trail. We start going again, and immediately the horse goes off the trail again. Because that horse knew that I had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> that I was scared to death of him and, and had no control over him whatsoever. And so finally the guide had to come back and take the horse by the bridle and ride along the rest of the way, holding that stubborn horse who did not want to stay on the path. That's sort of the image that God uses here in his counsel. Don't be like that horse. Don't choose to be reined in by the bit of God's discipline. Believers should be quick to obey out of love and gratitude for the mercy of God that they have received. And as for those who have never turned to God in repentance, stop running away from your only hope of salvation. Run to God for forgiveness. Turn to Christ and be rescued from your rebellion. And then in verse 10, we have another wisdom principle, very much like the ones in verses 1 and 2. which says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. This clearly confirms what David's testimony said in verses 3 and 4, uh, and it's a natural progression from the story of the stubborn horse, that image in verse 9. Those who remain stubbornly in their rebellion despite God's drawing will ultimately only find sorrow. But the second phrase offers hope. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Now the one who trusts in God will still have troubles, and sorrows. But the difference is that their life will not be defined by them. Because whatever comes, they are surrounded by God's steadfast love. And this gives great peace. Because we know that whatever happens, we are under His sovereign care. Our future is certain. And it's not because we are perfect, but it's because He is faithful to forgive. And so this sets before us a choice. Two ways 
in which we might live. One is a path of continued rebellion leading to sorrow, ultimately destruction. And the other is to choose a way of surrender and submission which leads to forgiveness and life. And by your response to God's offer of forgiveness that comes in the gospel, you will choose one way or the other. And finally, since this psalm is not meant, since this is a psalm, it's not meant only to teach us truth, but also to lead us to worship the one who is truth. It's fitting, therefore, that it concludes with a call to rejoice in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The closing statement here is addressed to the righteous, to the saints. Now, these are not ones who are inherently righteous on their own. These are former rebels who have been made righteous. They have been made upright in heart. They're redeemed sinners, and they are here instructed to rejoice and to shout for joy because of what God has done for them. As believers, as we meditate on this psalm, as we go from here today, thinking about the Word of God in Psalm 32, it should elicit praise and rejoicing from us. If your transgression has been forgiven, if your sin is covered, and if God has set His redeeming love upon you so that you have passed from death unto life, then your heart should overflow with love and praise and worship to the One who has made you His own, because He alone is worthy. Let's pray as the praise team comes back. God, you are great in mercy. Your steadfast love, it has no end. Thank you that you are faithful to rescue us from our rebellion when we call upon you. You would be perfectly just in leaving us alone to bear the full penalty of our sins, but you didn't leave us alone. You offer forgiveness and restoration for all who will acknowledge their sin and turn to you for help. And those who turn to you, you are faithful to forgive. You surround them with steadfast love and clothe them with the righteousness of Christ. Forgive us for our stubborn resistance. Pursue us in your mercy. Break down our opposition and cause us to be quick to confess our sins and to seek refuge in you. And may those who have experienced your forgiveness, whom you have adopted and made your own, respond with joyful hearts full of praise and adoration for all that you have done. Amen. What an astonishing thing it is that the God of the universe has not only created us to be beings who long for him and search for him, but that he shows himself to be the answer to that need. But in our sinful rebellion, we have strayed from him. We're going our own direction. Even in our religion, we try to uh, merit being made right to God. And his word teaches us that that's not possible. And so God himself provides the way for us to be made right with him. What a good reminder from Psalm 32 this morning, even as Dusted pointed out, the evidence there of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that only through him can we be made right to God. And maybe today is the day that you need to, to repent and believe in the gospel to be restored to God through faith in Jesus Christ.
What a good reminder to us, too, uh, who are believers, that we know, you know full well how much you can continue to struggle with sin. I was reminded personally this morning uh, to not persist in my sin, but to confess and repent quickly, to not, even though the, God is willing to lovingly discipline us, that we might not be uh, hurt or sidelined or some other thing in order for God to be able to get our attention. I'm a younger sibling, and I remember looking ahead at my siblings and some of the things that they were, were learning in their rebellion sometimes against my parents, and I was thinking to myself, I don't want to repeat that. So Christians, let's do the same. All the patterns that we see in Scripture, the things that we see in other people's lives, let's repent and be restored to God before God needs to do something else to get our attention because he will lovingly do so. So maybe as you go about your day today and this week, use the opportunity for that. Father God, we do love you. Lord, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that in it you have revealed yourself more explicitly to us. We know that we should look around at, at, at creation and even at our own selves, that you have made us, that we have consciences, and we should recognize that you're there, God, but you also tell us in your word that we can't know you savingly without your clear expression to us in your word. And so we thank you that you reveal yourself there and that you have especially revealed yourself through the God-man, Jesus Christ, that in him we can have a new life and be restored to you, made righteous, justified, to be able to live in fellowship with you, God, which we look forward to doing for all eternity. But, but as you've given us this time and this life, may we quickly confess and repent and desire to be in fellowship with you so that, so that we can also be used by you to help others know Jesus Christ as well. Help us to remember this week who we are, whose we are, and what we are supposed to be about. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.